Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so last week we started down this path of the idea that when Mark, and specifically Mark, so today as we go through this, you have to remember that I'm only going to be focusing on the book of Mark and his telling of the crucifixion. So if you read Matthew, you're going to see some differences. If you read Luke, he adds some things that you're not really sure what he's talking about. If you uh, go to John, he tells it a little bit differently. And what I was just saying to somebody here in the class is all of us have read this crucifixion story and heard it so many times in our lives, but what we do is we conflate the details. You have four Gospels. Each one has slightly different details. We conflate them all into one story in our mind so that your mind creates a picture of how this thing unfolded. And you may have been influenced by a Hollywood movie. Because the moment you see it on the big screen, now you've got a visual of what it was like. But then you're like, well, whose gospel are they following? So I realize, as I was sitting there last night putting this together, this can be very disturbing for somebody because I show up and I say, let's look at it different. Now, for some people, that's, that causes you to wake up and think about it differently. For other people, they're not real excited about looking at things differently. They like their way, and they don't want to change. So if I offend anybody or cause you to be disturbed because I'm changing the way you think about this, I apologize. But what we want to do is specifically look at Mark, the book of Mark. And as I, what we talked about last week was, he's going to put this in the context of a Roman triumph, something from the first century Roman period. That's where we're going to be going today, is to get to the conclusion of this, and we'll talk about a triumph. Now, just for uh, those on the video, let me do a quick announcement. Fig Tree Ministries, we're changing our format. This has normally been a Sunday morning class, live every Sunday. We take the recording and the, put it into a video. That's what makes it to YouTube. So if you're only watching on YouTube, this was a live class, but we're going to change the format to a midweek live Bible study. So starting in September, there will be a live Bible study that anybody can join on Zoom, and we'll get more information out about that. If you want to join that, you can go to our website, figtreeteaching.com, and there's a mailing list. You sign up for the mailing list. You'll get all the information about the upcoming change and the live Bible study. Okay. So the whole point is Mark is going to present the, cru the crucifixion not as a shameful death, but as the coronation of a king. And of course, it's the opposite of what the world thinks. Hey, the king isn't supposed to die on a cross, a shameful death. The king is supposed to reign with power and might and authority and control. And the gospel are, are telling us that's not how God's kingdom works. It's different. You want to become king? Submit yourself to God's authority. Humble yourself. Become a servant. 
maintain your orientation towards truth regardless of what the world says, even if they persecute you. That's the kingdom of God. That's the one who will become king. So he's going to say, he's going to flip this on his head, and he's going to say, no, 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 this isn't a shameful death. This is the coronation. And we have to realize Mark is most likely writing from Rome to a Roman audience, and he's right under the nose, if he's writing in, in the 60s, of Nero. So under the nose of Nero, you're going to write a document that says, uh, Nero, you're not king. The real king is Jesus. And when you write that to Rome in the Roman Empire, watch out. Because depending on who's in charge, they're not going to take kindly to you advising them that they're not the king. So what do you do? You put it in doublespeak. You put it in a little bit of a coded language so that you can plausibly deny that's what you're saying. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. That's, this, is, this is exactly what happened. Oh, it appears to look like it's the same uh, triumph, a Roman triumph? Well, maybe, maybe that's what you figured it out, right? So God wants us to figure this out on our own. But you do it in a bit of a doublespeak. Okay, uh, let me start. This is now, I, I need to start with one. I put this at the top of your handout. It's one scripture verse. Because I want to show you that the early church got this. This is a metaphor. The coronation is a metaphor that's floating around the early church. And we find it in Paul's writing. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And this is at the top of your sheet. So. I'll go through it real quick. Paul says this, Thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives. Now, so the metaphor is, you're a captive. And in a Roman triumph, you've just triumphed, in a way, over your enemy. So what do you do? You parade your enemy through the town to show how powerful you are. So Paul says, no, 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 you're one of those captives inside the the procession, right? So thanks be to God, he leads us as captives in whose procession? And Christ's triumphal procession. That's what we're talking about. So it seems if Paul is writing this prior to Mark, or at least about the same time as Mark, that metaphor exists in the early church because it's such a prominent thing within their culture, the first uh, century Roman Empire within the, the, the likes of the imperial cult. This had been going on for hundreds of years, not just with the imperial cult, but with some of the gods, particularly Dionysus. So no matter where you live, you saw triumphs. All right, but now they're going to say, no, 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 and now it's Jesus is the king. He's got the triumphal procession. And then it says this, and he uses us to spread the aroma. What's he talking about? Well, during that procession, you would have incense going up. And it lets everybody know there's two things. The incense represents both life and death. We've got a king, so you can smell it. Everybody smells it. But it's also uh, myrrh. Myrrh is a resurrection spice. That's what they bury Jesus with. There are going to be captives that die in that parade. There are going to be those that live. So it represents a parade of life and death. You, according to Paul, become that aroma to the rest of the world. How does the world know that God exists and that Jesus is the triumphal Christ? Because of you. 
How do you smell to the whole world? Do they pick up on the fact that you're different than the world? Because, you know, you can smell difference. It's not, it's not a physical smell. It's a spiritual smell. You can sniff it out. So I just wanted to point this out because Paul is he's telling us that this metaphor exists prior to Mark even writing. So when Mark picks it up, it's not picking it up out of nowhere. That early church recognizes a context that we just don't have. Now, if you want to turn, we're going to be in Mark 15, and it's verses 16 to 39. I actually extended it from last week because I need to include the very end. But So Mark 15, 16 to 39, and what's the point? What's Mark telling us in his book? One of the main things is Jesus is the true king. And you have to put true king because in their world, there was another guy claiming to be Lord of all, Lord and God, son of God. He was called the Caesar. And it starts with Caesar Augustus, and you're supposed to pass it down from Augustus to Tiberius to Caligula to Claudius to Nero. Now, if you notice, it's all going downhill. The world keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And those Roman, that empire, that Ro- the people in the Roman Empire realize it. This isn't going as it's supposed to go. And so when Mark shows up and says, they're not king, they don't hold the world in order. It's God and his king, the Christ. People are primed to hear that message. So he's the true king, not the Caesar. All right. Um, That's part of the message. So when he presents the crucifixion, he's going to present it, one, as a coronation. This is how Jesus becomes king or as N.T. Wright in his book, How God Became King. He's installing his king on the throne, and the king is his son, the Christ, and that's Jesus. It's also, another way to put it, is a Roman triumph. And this is what we're going to look at today, is it had developed over time, starts with generals who are coming back from a battle. By the first century, it's only the emperor is allowed to do a triumph. And a triumph, There's a set order that you're going to do this in, especially if you're in Rome. So we have to look at the set order of a triumph and then read Mark. And guess what you find? Sentence by sentence in the exact order. And that is where the article that I gave you by Thomas Schmidt, he says, look, the coincidences are way too strong to say that that's not what Mark was intending, especially if he's writing from Rome. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today, is we're going to first look at the Roman triumph, then we'll read Mark, and all your spidey senses will be tingling, because you'll say, aha, I see exactly what he's doing here. I'll even show you how there's a couple pieces where Matthew changes it, and it might just be some difficulty that Matthew's like, wait a minute, this would be a difficult detail, and he changes just something very minor, but it's enough to make a change. Okay. One thing we talked about last week, very important to compare these two. In the Roman triumph, it's called a via sacra, the sacred way. You start at the praetorium. The praetorium is the military headquarters of the praetorian guard. We'll talk about that. That's the secret service to the Roman emperor. They're the elite of the elite. They got paid triple the amount of a normal soldier. They're the elite people who protect the emperor. They can also take down the emperor if they don't like him. So they'll make or break you. If you don't have their support, you don't become emperor. But you go the sacred way. You go from the praetorium 
all the way to Head Hill. That's the Capitoline Hill in Rome. That's where you end for the sacrifice. So that's the sacred way. But what we're going to look at with Jesus is something called the Via Dolorosa. Oh, his path to becoming king is called the way of suffering. And in God's kingdom, you accept all of your limitations of being that we have to deal with in this world. And part of accepting the limitations of being is that you accept the suffering that goes along with every limitation. When you suffer anxiety, it's because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. When you suffer the pain of loss, it's because we're all finite. We all have limitations, and when and we bump against the limitation, you suffer. And the path to become king is not to f- get power and try to stop all of that suffering. It's to ex- accept it. You, you lean into it. So this is the path to becoming king. All right, last week we mentioned, this is just a bit of review. It's all put in the context of that imperial cult. Uh, the imperial cult is the sanctioned worship of the emperor in the first century. We are not used to that context, but study that and you find out, oh, wait a minute, boy, that sounds just like what our authors are telling us Jesus is. In fact, why did God choose that moment in time to send his son? Well, Augustus was the first guy to say, I am the son of God and, the, and Lord and God. Ah, maybe I should go send my son right now into this mix and disrupt that, what they're doing. So it's all in the context of the imperial cult. All right, so this is what we're going to do, and we're going to look at this as a Roman triumph. I put on your sheet one article, and you can actually access this article online. Most of the time, this is Biblical Archaeology Society. There's a magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review, and then they have a magazine that actually they stopped publishing called Bible Review. This showed up in Bible Review. But if you want to read the article, the author is Thomas Schmidt. He was a professor of New Testament studies at Westmont up in uh, Santa Barbara. And he's got the, it's Jesus' triumphal march to the crucifixion. So if you want to read more about it at a later date, check out that article and you can access it. You don't need to be, you don't have to have a, a, a membership to get that particular article. All right, so let's go. What I'm going to do is give you the steps. Now, I, I had to limit it because we don't have, we have a limited amount of time this morning, right? So we have to basically do a quick overview. I'm going to put up here, I put nine steps. There could be more. There's a lot more details that I just don't have time to put in here. But this will give you a, an example of what a Roman triumph looks like. This is the, the, the basic steps to a Roman triumph as they did it in the first century, and we have a number of historical writings that are describing all of this. So we're, the scholars aren't pulling this out of thin air. So for instance, I mentioned this. You start at the place called the Praetorium. That's the headquarters of a place. This is, this is all, by the way, in Rome. It's happening in Rome. There's a group called the Praetorian Guard. They're going to make or break you as the Caesar. So it starts there. There's a ceremonial dress. It comes from Dionysus. It's very old. This has been developed over hundreds of years. The king walks out. He's in a ceremonial dress. There's a procession. 
They're going to process through the town to show everybody their power, their might. They're going to have the captives from their, that they've conquered. They're going to have placards to tell you what people they conquered. They're going to have sacri- animals for sacrifice. Uh, they're going to have all the incense that's going to waft about. And of course, the cheering crowds, the cheering crowds that are so excited about how powerful we are and we're number one, right? Because that's what we all want to be. There's going to be somebody carrying the death instrument, meaning you're going to have a sacrificial victim, normally a bull, but somebody next to him is going to carry the instrument that's going to be the, the sacrificial instrument. We'll talk about that. It ends, you climb, you go through the Roman Forum, and you end at Capitoline Hill. Capitol Hill is where it all takes place. And it also means Head Hill, as we talked about last week is the place they found the skull. Then you're gonna, there's going to be an offering of myrrh mixed with wine. The, you're going to have the Caesar is going to be elevated. So they're going to elevate him in a way, and they're going to put him between two officials. It's a show of solidarity. The crowd is going to hail the Caesar, and then you're going to look for any signs or omens that are going to help you uh, solidify the fact that the gods are happy that now this sacrifice has been accepted. So this is what it looks like. We'll go through this step by step, and I'll just comment on a few of those. So if we start, number one here, praetorium. And Mark is going to use the word praetorium. Now, there's two sides to this. The praetorian guard, that's, as I mentioned, they're the secret service. They're the closest to the emperor. They're the palace guard. They're the Swiss guards of the Vatican. And they're going to be the ones you have to have their support in order to get to be the emperor. So the Praetorian Guard, where were they headquartered? Well, that's the place called the Praetorium. Now, if you look at the word Praetorium, it gets used for a number of different places, basically anywhere there's a headquarters. So when Mark says they took Jesus to the Praetorium, it would be wherever the headquarters is, in Jerusalem, of the military, the Roman military. So it can be used as both. But if you're in Rome, it's pointing to the place where the Praetorian guards. All right, so that's the word Praetorium. We're going to start there. And we gotta, we'll notice that Mark uses that word right there. But you've got to know where, what's the background of him using that. Okay, ceremonial dress. Well, guess what they dressed the Caesar in? Purple purple robe. Now, traditionally, this comes from the Greeks did it with their god Dionysus. Dionysus was a a statue in his temple, and he was dressed. They had people go in and clean, wash, and dress Dionysus every day in a purple robe and a crown, because Dionysus was the triumphal god. He triumphed. This is where the thing starts hundreds of years before but you get a purple robe. Purple, of course, is royalty. And a crown. That's the ceremonial dress as Caesar is being presented to the Praetorians. They're going to hail him and declare that he's the triumphant person that we will now follow. All right, so from the ceremonial dress, they're going to start a procession, and that procession is the Via Sacra through Rome, as I mentioned, through the Forum, it ends at Capitoline Hill. And what they would do is carry, or they would bring along a bull as a sacrifice. 
hundreds of years of development, people would look at the, the person being hailed, the human being, and the bull, and they would say, they're both representative of God. We're going to sacrifice the bull. So the bull is the sacrifice offered, but the bull is also a representative of the God, but so is the other person. So it gets a little bit confusing, but either way, bull as a sacrifice. Next, I mentioned this on your list. There's an instrument of death that somebody else carries. There's an official carrying this instrument of death. It's, uh, it's depicted as an axe. I'll show you one image that'll at least give you an idea of what this looks like. So somebody's carrying an axe along with that bull, and the bull becomes the sacrificial animal. And just to give you an image in your mind, um, now I just want a full disclosure. I pulled this picture off of uh, Wikipedia because you can license Wikipedia under their common license. This is not actually an image of a, a triumph. But if you go look at other triumphs, as there are, so you can do the Arch of Trajan, which is a triumph, and you'll see on there a bull with a guy carrying the same thing. So notice this guy right here. What's he holding? An axe. And, and every triumph, or every depiction of this, you have someone next to the bull carrying an, uh, an axe. Like I said, full disclosure, because I had to license a picture, and this one is off of Wikicommons, this is what it looks like, but that actually is a, this is a different Roman sacrifice. It's a pig, a sheep, and a bull, but I just want to show you that picture. Let me go a little bit closer to show you what it looks like, so you can see somebody carrying the instrument of death. Okay, so you have this official carrying the instrument of death, and you're going to sacrifice the animal. Where do they end up? They end up at a place called Head Hill. As we talked about last week, the history is when they were building the temple to Jupiter and they were excavating the foundation, or building the foundation of the temple to Jupiter, they found a skull. And that skull, in, Italian, or, uh, in Latin, caput. So caput, capitoline, is Capitol Hill, the Head Hill. And if you think about our government, right, we have Capitol Hill, and we're a republic, like the Roman Republic was. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of the same imagery going on. You even have, if you go in the Capitol Hill and look up on the ceiling, I showed you a couple of weeks ago the apotheosis. There's an apotheosis of George Washington. It's the image of George Washington being elevated into the, a godlike status. So. This imagery has lasted a long time. Okay, Capitol Hill. They go to Capitol Hill. They sacrifice to the Temple of Jupiter. And, of course, that's called Head Hill or the Place of the Skull. This right here is a picture. That's the modern-day Capitoline Hill in, uh, in Rome. And so that's, that's the modern-day view of it. This is an artist's rendering. This is the Temple to Jupiter. Everybody ascends the hill that's one of the seven hills of Rome, and you have your sacrifice there on the altar, and then the, hail the Caesar as the new king. So that is also Temple of Jupiter. Let's move on. Murd wine. This is the one that gives it away. Wait till you see it in Mark. 
you offer the king wine mixed with myrrh. Now, according to Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Elder was a first century naturalist writer who says myrrh mixed with wine was a delicacy. It gives flavor to the wine. So myrrh mixed with wine is offered to the king. Guess what the king does? He refuses it. And then he takes the wine and he pours the wine out on the altar. The wine represents the blood of the sacrifice. You pour out the blood on the altar. So myrrhed wine. Okay? Next, you're going to elevate the king. Because you have to elevate him, not only just in your mind, but you elevate him, physically elevate him. So you elevated position, and what you do is you stick somebody, two people, one on their right, one on the left. And one on the right and one on the left, usually they could be, say, somebody from the royal family, it could be military officials, but it's someone to say there's solidarity in this, in this elevation of the king. We're giving credence because he's not alone up there. We're joining him. So you flank him left and right. That gives solidarity to, the, uh, to this choice of king. See, I can already see your spidey senses going off, right? You're like, uh-oh, wait a minute. What's happening here? All right, the crowd then is going to start hailing. Hail Caesar, Lord and God. Now, I had to, I put lowercase God, but to them, it was hail Caesar, Lord and God. That's what you're elevating this person to be, divine. And they all took that title to some degree or another. Whether you agreed with it or not, usually the closer you are to the Caesar, you're like, okay, that guy's obviously not divine. But the further you are to the east, say, Asia Minor, where Revelation is written, or even towards uh, all of where Israel is, they're elevating kings into the status of gods. Then you look for a sign or an omen. You want to look for favor from the gods. So, for instance, there's one documented source that says that at Nero, one of Nero's triumphs, there was a flock of white doves that came from one direction, and then a flock of white doves that came from another direction, and that was the sign that Nero is lord of all, the whole earth, because the whole earth is honoring him. It's called, in Greek, we would say, ecumene. Have you heard of the word ecumenical? It's the whole earth. So it would, it's to declare, the omen is to declare, you're Lord of all. Now, I'll show you a great picture because it's, they love to do propaganda art. So this right here, it's called, Gemma Augusta, I don't know how you might say that in Latin, not that I'm looking at a Latin expert in our class here. This is actually a piece of jewelry that was done. This right here is uh, Augustus, that's Caesar Augustus. Now he's being hailed, and notice everybody in that panel, the upper panel, who are they looking at? Caesar, even the little eagle that's sitting below his feet, right, is looking up. So everybody's pointed at the person that they're going to be honoring. That's Caesar Augustus. And then if you look at all of the people who are in here, they all have a specific role to play. 
But I want to show you the, this person right back here. Let me see if I can get my... You see a female, and she's placing a crown on, the, on Caesar. Now, that female is the personification of the word oikumene. The whole world, we say ecumene. It's the inhabited earth. And what it's, what it's telling you is the whole world is honoring the Caesar as Lord and God. And we do it by the world placing a crown on his head. Now, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Caesar Augustus is Lord. Anybody want to, right? I mean, now Paul is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah says, Yahweh, every knee shall bow and confess that Yahweh is Lord. Then Paul takes it, takes out Yahweh and puts in Jesus Christ as Lord. So it's a quote from Isaiah, but the, the point is, who do you put in the position of Lord? That's the question. It's still a question today that we have to wrestle with. Who do you make Lord and God of all? This hasn't gone away. Anyways, that's some propaganda art, but when you get to this idea of an omen, that's what they want to say. Is nature being, is, is the, are the cosmos confirming our choice for the Caesar? And so we have to look for an omen, something from the heavens that are going to declare that, yes, this is Lord and God and Lord of all. Okay, and ecumene, that's, of course, where we get ecumenical. All of this symbolism still exists today in some way, shape, or form, whether we we have to have eyes to see, right? Jesus says to his disciples, you have eyes, but you don't see. We're looking right at it, but we don't see what's being said to us. It's more of, oh, I'll talk about it in a minute. It's more of insight. You have inner sight to see. Okay. All right, now let's go. Let's go to Mark, because now you're going to just be like, oh, every sentence is going to tell you something about this this triumph. And Mark is the whole point. This is not a crucifixion of death or shame. This is the, tr this is the royal triumph of a king. And now it's up to you to decide, is he king or not? Okay, so let's start at verse 16, or it's chapter 15, verse 16. And we'll just watch how Mark puts this together, sentence by sentence. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium. So where does this procession start? At the praetorium, same as it does in Rome. So if you're listening, if we were a small house church in Rome, and a letter from Mark shows up, and we start reading it, we start saying, oh, wait a minute, I know what he's saying. Because we've all seen the, the processions downtown. Now, here's the part that throws scholars off, okay? I want to tell you, I don't want you to be, um, I don't want it to bother you that there's, there might be something in there that scholars go, wait a minute, why would that happen? But you have to notice what Mark is doing. He's painting a picture. And it says, so it says, they called together, they called together the whole company of soldiers. Now, the whole company? A few hundred soldiers? You're going to bring a few hundred soldiers out 
for one criminal? That's where scholars say, but if it's the king, who do you bring out? The whole company of soldiers. The, all, everybody shows up. You're not allowed to skip that day of formation. You show up because, for the king. So Mark says, everybody was there. Now, what you're going to see is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anti-triumph. He's going to show it as, what, what, how does the world view the, the real king? We want to crucify him. Don't, that's what the world wants to do. So they're going to mock him, and they're going to crucify him. And they're going to say, no, you're not the real king. So it starts out here. Here's our, we start with that one. We're at the Praetorium. That's our list. Then it says this, 17 and 18. Look how they dress him. They put a purple robe on him. Now, again, this is a scholarly question. Where do you get purple in the first century? That's a controlled item. There's probably two people in Jerusalem that are allowed to wear a purple robe. Pilate and perhaps Herod Antipas. But Pilate, definitely. Is Pilate going to lend his robe to a criminal and let the soldiers spit on it? Not likely. So purple is the royal robe. Now what you notice is that Matthew changes it to scarlet. And so you scratch your head and say, why did Matthew change it to scarlet? Well, that's now the color of a soldier's robe, which might be more likely. And you can at least say, Matthew's seeing a problem with that color purple, because purple's a, you, equestrian and above can wear purple. You're not allowed to wear purple if you're a normal person. You don't give a purple robe to a criminal. Okay, they put a purple robe on him. What did they give him next? A thorn. Or, uh, I'm sorry, a thorn. A crown, yeah. But now, notice, it's an anti-crown. It's a crown of suffering. So it's a crown of thorns. And then, what do they do next? They begin to hail him. And here's what, this is what Mark's whole point is. Who's the king? And he's telling you straight away it's Jesus, but he's doing it through that, you know, in a, in a, he's presenting it as a mockery. So they begin to hail him. So that's what we get here. You get the ceremonial dress and the, the, the praetorians. Now let me keep reading because we have to keep going. Verse 19 and 20. Again and again, they struck him on the head with the staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. So of course, this is a, whole, this is a mockery. It's an anti-triumph. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes back out, and then they lead him out to, for the sacrifice. So they're now going to start the procession. Where does the procession start? From the Praetorium. Now we're going to go. Is it the Via Sacra? Nope, it's the Via Dolorosa, the path of suffering. So they let him out to be crucified. Okay, next, there we are. They're at the procession. Now, one of the strangest things that Pop showed in the very next sentence is you get this person that now shows up, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon. And then a a minor detail that you have to scratch your head and say, now, why did Mark put this in here? The father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, where do we find the name Rufus? In the book of Romans. So perhaps Rufus, the audience knows who they are. In uh, Romans 16, Paul says, greet Rufus. His mother has been like a mother to me. 
why include that, the father of Alexander and Rufus, unless his audience knows who those people are? So if he's in Rome, and then you find it in the, the book of Romans, you say, aha, they're talking about the same person. Okay, uh, he was passing by on his way in from the country, and what do, they, what do they do? Force him to carry the instrument of death. Now, if you read John, John says Jesus carried his own cross. So it's a little bit different. Um, normally, what you carry is not the full cross. They would have a bar that's stuck in the ground, and you would carry tea, the T part. Yeah, the cross piece. You would carry that on your shoulders, not the full, not like you're dragging a giant cross behind you, and then they would lift you up on top of the thing that's already stuck in the ground. But again, you have somebody carrying the death instrument. That's the point. So that when we go back to our list, somebody else carries the instrument of death. Now, where do they go? Head Hill, right? They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which is Aramaic, but it comes from the Hebrew, which means head, which means the place of the skull. Head Hill. The fact that he includes that, all the Gospels include that. This is another one that scholars have had a hard time figuring out where's the place of the skull, because normally if you have some if they mention a reference point in Jerusalem, you know it's a place where everyone knows where it is. They have a hard time with this one. But anyways, so now it's, it's going to Capitoline Hill. He's going to Head Hill. That's where the sacrifice takes place. And the very next sentence is the sacrifice itself. They say in the next sentence, oh, I'm sorry. Back up, not the next sentence. Rewind. Uh, before you have the sacrifice, what do you do? You offer, this is the one that I think totally gives it away. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That's what, they, that's what Mark says they offered Jesus. Why would you offer a criminal a delicacy? So if you read Matthew, he changes the, he changes the word myrrh to gall. And he adds another few sentences to describe what's going on. But where do we get wine mixed with myrrh? from the, the Roman triumph. And again, you, that just makes you scratch your head because um, why would you offer a criminal a delicacy? Then what does Jesus do? Well, he does exactly what the, the Roman triumph does, and he doesn't accept it. Now, it doesn't say it's poured out. He leaves that detail out, but I just want you to notice that it's the same exact details in the same exact order as that Roman triumph. I think this is the one that really, because he didn't take it, and now, again, well, let me go to the next one. What's the very next thing? After you pour out the wine on the, on the sacrifice, or on the altar, is now you're going to have the sacrifice. So what do you do? They crucified him. Now you get the sacrifice. It comes directly after that bit about the wine and the myrrh. Okay, so go back to our list. You get the wine and the myrrh. So now he's crucified. Now they're going to have to elevate him and have two officials. So what does it say next? They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right 
and one on his left. Now, who are the rebels? Rebels according to who? Rome. Does it mean? Now, we see, when we translate that thieves, that makes it sound like they're crucified for stealing. That's not a crucifiable offense in the Roman Empire. They're thieves. They're stealing Roman taxes, perhaps, or they're bandits, or they're rebels, or they're insurrectionists, or they're zealots. And that's what we've been talking about for the, that four weeks in a row. He's crucified between two zealots. And who doesn't like the zealots is the Roman Empire. And it doesn't mean that the zealots, well, okay, if you murder somebody, yes, you're sinning. But just being a zealot doesn't mean that you've sinned. But to the Roman Empire, you have. You've sinned against them. So we have to question, are those two officials really thieves? Or are they people who are resisting the, the imperial, um, imperial Rome? So here's what happens. You get something that looks just like that. You get the elevation of the Christ between two officials. And then you have to ask yourself, when you see this, is do you have eyes to see? Do we understand what's happening here? And it's not that every detail must match in all four Gospels or else you throw the whole book away. It's do you see what Mark is telling you? Do you have the insight? In, the word insight, inner sight. It's when you meditate on the scripture and something comes to mind, a picture in your mind that says, this is what Jesus is. And that picture becomes very powerful. It's like manna from heaven for your spirit. It gives you spiritual strength to get through all kinds of stuff. Do we have eyes to see what Mark is telling us? That when you see that picture, that's the elevation of a king, not just a common criminal. So that's when, when the, the power of this book is when you meditate on it, you get insights that tell you something that's more real than what we can see with our own eyes. And not everybody sees it. So do you have eyes to see? Okay, so there's the elevation. Now, the next one is the crowd hailing, but you know, Mark is showing this as an anti-triumph. So how does the crowd treat Jesus? Well, it's exactly how the world treats the real king. Like I said last week, if you have the ideal, you'll crucify it. You'll kill it. Why? Because it just annoys you. It points out all of your flaws. So Jesus shows up. He's got no sin. Everything's working out for him. They hate it because it makes them look bad. And what do they do? Let's kill him. That's Cain and Abel. It's the same story. Brothers killing another brother because they're annoyed when that brother is righteous. So. This is how the world treats the true king. All right, now, let's get to the end, because we got to, well, we got to wrap this up here. The crowd hails him. What's the last one? We're looking for a sign. Any signs happen, right? Now, we're not going to read apart. The, the sky goes dark, right, for a few hours. There's a sign, right? Uh-oh, the middle of the day, the sun just disappeared. Um, but look what it says in verse 38. I'm skipping down a little bit. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Is that a sign from heaven? Yeah, and on the veil of the uh, uh, on that veil, according to Josephus, were all the stars of the universe. So it's like the cosmos itself are being ripped apart. 
Mark begins his story at the baptism where it says the heavens were ripped apart. And God descends and lands on Jesus, the Spirit. And then at the end, the heavens were ripped apart as the veil's torn. It's another inclusio. And the people come out of the graves, according to Matthew. This is a huge omen, right? Then, next verse, very next verse, is where we get now the confirmation that, that he's Lord of all, because now a centurion, a centurion stood in front of Jesus. This is a, someone who's representing Rome and a Gentile. Surely this man is the Son of God. Now, a centurion saying that, when Caesar's being, claiming to be the Son of God, completely sub, is sub, subversive to that Roman Empire. But it shows the difference between the empire of man and the empire of God. The kingdom of God is always upside down compared to what mankind thinks. So you get an omen. The omen is responded to by a representative of Rome to confirm what just took place. All right. It's great. You start at the Praetorian. You dress him in purple and a crown. You process via Dolorosa, not via Sacra. Somebody else carries the cross, the death instrument. You head to Head Hill, Golgotha. You offer myrrh and wine. The king refuses it. You have the elevation, that you have the next verse that's the crucifixion. They elevate it. They elevate him. The crowd, of course, this is an anti-triumph, uh, doesn't hail the king as, the, as he should be. And of course, now you get a sign from the heavens that say, yes, it's true. And it, it declares that he is Lord of all. So what's Mark saying? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, Old Testament Messiah. He's Greek, Christ. Christ is the anointed one, the king. And if you know your Jewish prophecy, that king is going to end up being king over the entire world. And you tell that to any government, and they don't like it. It's just the way of the world. Unless you choose to, as a government, subvert yourself to God, make yourself lower than God. So Jesus is the true son of God. It's not the Caesar. That's a first century message. He's the real king. It's not the emperor. And, oh, by the way, if you're going to try to become Christ-like, like a little king yourself, Christ-like, you don't take a path of power. You don't lord over people. You don't manipulate people for power. You take a path of service and humility, and it's a path of suffering. That's how you become the king in this world. You, you place yourself as a, as a servant of truth, and then you become the king. So, that finishes our study on Mark. Four years later, I couldn't have... You couldn't have planned a better way to end Mark than the declaration of the king, right? Through first century eyes. And that's the whole point. Uh, when we were talking last night, the whole point of biblical studies versus most of you are used to theological studies. You study the theologies that we've developed over 2,000 years. That's why you always say, I've never heard this before, because we're doing biblical studies. Biblical studies says go back to the culture and the history right before all those events happened to try to figure out what the first century audience is thinking. 
not through the lens of 2,000 years of church history or theological doctrines. That's why it often sounds different. But I think what happens when you do that first is it gives you something very profound, and it sticks with you. It's very, uh, stays with you longer. It's a, because it's not just an abstract philosophy. So that's my uh, apologetic for biblical study. All right, let me get the Zoom people back on the screen here. We're going to stop that share and...